0: <laughs> Beloved brethren and sisters and friends, long will this solemn assembly remain in our memories. Long will we tingle from the impressive address of President Lee following the voting. I think if one, almost if one were stone with a heart of stone, he would melt with the demonstration of this morning to see all the groups, the various groups, raise their hands in unison to support the leaders of the Church. And it touched my heart deeply. This is a notable day Another act in the greatest drama is being played. No theatrical stage has ever produced such acts as of such engrossing interest and importance as have been the scenes of the history of the Church in these last days. The stage has changed from New York to Ohio to Missouri to Illinois to Utah. The conditions have altered, and the people who have taken the parts are different people. Another great leader is sustained. What a privilege for us to be a part of such an important event. In this change in leadership of the Church, it is important that the quorums of the priesthood and the assembly of the Saints have an opportunity to express their gratitude, pledge their support and confidence, and reaffirm their covenants. The calling of President Harold B. Lee follows the same pattern as that of the other presidents back for many, many years. He holds all the same keys, has the same authority, represents the same Church except that it has grown much larger. When the Church was organized in 1830, it was composed of six people. So the Prophet Joseph Smith presided at first over a very small group, but it grew to many thousands by the time of his martyrdom. When Brigham Young became president, there were approximately 40,000 members. 1887, the new president, John Taylor, Presided over about 145,000. Wilfred Woodruff in 1887 had about 192,000 under him. When Lorenzo Snow became president in 1898, there were about 253,000 members. And then Joseph F. Smith had a quarter of a million plus. President Heber J. Grant had near a half million. George Albert Smith, one million. And when President McKay became president in 1951, there were over a million 100,000 members. When Joseph Fielding Smith took over the reins, there were about 2,800,000. And as President Harold B. Lee becomes the president, there are about 3,200,000 and growing very rapidly. It's reassuring to know that President Lee was not elected through committees and conventions with all their conflicts and criticisms and by the common vote of men, but he was called of God and then sustained by the people. The Church has had three different presidents in three years. A Desert News editorial wrote this, In many organizations, such rapid turnover at the top could readily bring on confusing shifts in direction and with them a feeling of hesitancy and uncertainty. But by contrast, the feeling within the Church during this historic period has been one of stability and of clear purpose, of constancy, amid change. The pattern divine allows for no errors, no conflicts, no ambitions, no ulterior motives. The Lord has reserved for himself the calling of his leaders over his Church. It's a study of great interest and importance. President Harold B. Lee became the president of the Church on July 7, 1972, but was ordained an apostle April 6, 1941, and was undoubtedly foreordained to these responsibilities in the far, far away past, as were his predecessors. The Prophet Joseph Smith made this statement over a century ago. Every man who has a calling to minister to the inhabitants of the world was ordained to that very purpose in the Grand Council of Heaven before the world was. One of the early apostles spoke of Joseph Smith. That authority was not conferred upon him when he first saw angels and had some of the gifts. It required the laying on of hands of someone who had the authority of the holy priesthood. In due time he received that authority under the hands of those who last held the keys upon the earth. He continues, When Jesus took his three disciples into the mount, he was transfigured before them, and Moses and Elias administered unto them. And at that time Peter was ordained to hold the keys of that dispensation. He held the keys in conjunction with his brethren James and John. They came in modern times and done, unitedly laid their hands upon the heads of Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery and ordained them to the authority that they themselves held, that of the Apostleship. Significant to us is the fact that there has never been one minute since April 6, 1830, 142 years ago, that the Church has been without divine leadership. No deceased president has ever taken the keys and authorities into the spirit world away from the Church on the earth. The second that the spirit left the body of President Joseph Fielding Smith on July 2nd, President Harold B. Lee, in that same second, as president of the Twelve Apostles, rightfully assumed command and was the true and recognized leader, having been foreordained as said by Joseph Smith. President George Q. Cannon speaks of the foreordination. It is a remarkable fact that Joseph Smith had gifts before he was ordained. He was a seer, for he translated before he was ordained. He was a prophet, for he predicted a great many things before he was ordained. He was a revelator, for God gave unto him revelations before the Church was organized. He, therefore, was a prophet, seer, and revelator before he was ordained in the flesh. The Quorum of the Twelve on July 7, 1972 held all these gifts, and President Harold B. Lee has held them and the keys and the fullness of the priesthood since April 6, 1941, reaffirmed by the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles on July seventh of this year. Full provision has been made by our Lord for changes. Today there are 14 apostles holding the keys in suspension, the 12 and the two counselors to the president, to be brought into use if and when circumstances allow, all ordained to leadership in their turn as they move forward in seniority. There have been some 80 apostles so endowed since Joseph Smith. Though only 11 have occupied the place of the president of the church, death having intervened, and since the death of his servants is in the power and control of the Lord, he permits to come to the first place only the one who is destined to take that leadership. Death and life become the controlling factor. Each new apostle in turn is chosen by the Lord and revealed to the then living prophet who ordains him. The matter of seniority is basic in the first quorums of the Church. All the apostles understand this perfectly, and all well-trained members of the Church are conversant with this perfect succession program. Joseph Smith bestowed upon the Twelve Apostles all the keys and authority and power that he himself possessed and that he had received from the Lord. He gave unto them every endowment, every washing, anointing, administered unto them the sealing ordinances. Today we have the opportunity, as did the children of Israel, to covenant again and to sustain the new prophet. The Lord said to Joshua, and it applies likewise to President Lee, There shall not any man be able to stand before thee, all the days of thy life. As I was with Moses, the Lord says, so I will be with thee. I will not fail thee nor forsake thee. And the people said, We will serve the Lord. The Lord God will we serve, and his voice will we obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day. Let this then be our covenant today. An early leader said, I look at our president. I always did watch the captain of the ship with peculiar interest. When on the ocean, surrounded by icebergs, or when in the midst of great storms, I watched his eye and his demeanor, and I fancied that I could form a good idea of our peril by watching him. I've been in storms when everybody on board expected, excepting the elders, expected to go down. Now it's our privilege to sustain President Lee. An important rule was given by us, by the prophet Joseph to us, with which you're probably familiar. I will give you one of the keys of the mysteries of the kingdom. It's an eternal principle that has existed with God from all eternity. That man who rises up to condemn others, finding fault with the Church, saying that they're out of the way while he himself is righteous, then know assuredly that that man is on the high road to apostasy, and if he does not repent, he will apostatize as God lives. The present canon warned again, And if any of you have indulged in the spirit of murmuring and fault-finding and have allowed your thoughts and your tongues to give utterance to thoughts and words that were wrong and not in accordance with the spirit of the gospel, you ought to repent with all your hearts and get down into the depths of humility and implore him for the forgiveness of that sin, for it is a most deadly sin. The men who hold the priesthood are but mortal men. They are fallible men. No one knows that better than they themselves. No human being that ever trod this earth was free from sin, excepting the Son of God. This is true concerning all of the brethren, I am sure. Nevertheless, God has chosen these men. He has singled them out. But he has selected them, and he has placed upon them the authority of the holy priesthood, and they have become his representatives in the earth. He places them as shepherds over the flock of Christ and as watchmen upon the walls of Zion, and he holds them to a strict accountability for the authority which he has given to them. And in the day of the Lord Jesus they will have to stand and be judged for the manner in which they have exercised this authority if they have exercised it wrongfully and against the interest of his work and the salvation of his people, woe unto them in the day of the Lord Jesus. He will judge them. This same early apostle tells us that the Lord gives the authority to judge and condemn only to the regularly constituted councils of the Church and not to man generally. And those who lift their voices against the authority of the holy priesthood will go down to hell. Unless they repent. It was President Wilfred Woodruff who in his closing years made this statement, I ask my Heavenly Father to pour out His Spirit upon us as His servant that in my advanced age and during the few days I have to spend here in the flesh, I may be led by His inspiration. I say to Israel, The Lord will never permit me or any other man who stands as president of this Church to lead you astray. It is not in the program. It is not the mind of God. If I were to attempt that, the Lord would remove me out of my place, and so he will will any other man who attempts to lead the children of men astray from the oracles of God and from their duty. This should give us deep assurance. One other leader wrote, Men do not obtain place in this Church because they seek for it. If it were known that a man was ambitious to hold a certain office in the Church, that fact itself would lead to his defeat because his desire would not be granted unto him. This is the case with the officers of this Church. They are responsible to God who chose and nominated them, and it is for him to straighten them out if they do wrong. May the Lord bless our new president, his counselors, and fully sustain them. May we, the people, uphold their hands and totally sustain President Harold B. Lee, whom I know to be a prophet of the Lord on this earth. I bear testimony that the God whose voice was heard on the Jordan River Among the Nephites in the Grove in New York is our Heavenly Father, and the one to whom he alluded when he said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, is our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the head of the Church. And I bear testimony, to that President Lee is a prophet of God, And if we will follow him, we will make great headway in the kingdom. I bear this testimony to you in all fervor and sincerity. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen.
1: This day I greet you wherever you are as friends. Someone has said, a friend is a person who is willing to take me the way I am. Accepting this as one definition of the word, may I quickly suggest that we are something less than a real friend if we leave a person the way we find him. There seems to be a misunderstanding on the part of some men today as to what it means to be a friend. Acts of a friend should result in self-improvement, better attitudes self-reliance, comfort, consolation, self-respect, and better welfare. Certainly the word friend is misused if it is identified with a person who contributes to our delinquency, misery, and heartaches. When we make a man feel he is wanted, his whole attitude changes. Our friendship will be recognizable if our actions and attitude result in improvement and independence. It takes courage to be a real friend. Some of us endanger the valued classification of friend because of our unwillingness to be one under all circumstances. Fear can deprive us of friendship. Some of us identify our closest friends as those with the courage to remain and share themselves with us under all circumstances. A friend is a person who will suggest and render the best for us regardless of the immediate consequences. Winston Churchill became Great Britain's greatest friend in his country's darkest hour because he was courageous courageous enough to call for blood, toil, tears, and sweat when some would have accepted him more readily as a friend had he advocated peaceful surrender. President Abraham Lincoln was once criticized for his attitude toward his enemies. Why do you try to make friends of them, an associate asked. You should try to destroy them. Am I not destroying my enemies, Lincoln gently replied when he said, when I try to make them my friends. Are we not within our rights as members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? To regard our prophet, seer, and revelator, Harold B. Lee, as a close personal friend, as he leaves us improved daily by his willingness to reprove, admonish, love, encourage, and guide according to our needs, President Lee is our friend. I bear witness he is in the fullest and most noble sense of the word and he will lead us by his inspiration and by his courageous character. I invite you to be his friend. What a pleasure it was for me this morning to raise my arm to the square and sustain my friend, President Harold B. Lee. His friendship with me down through the years has met the test. He has always been willing to take me the way I am, but leave me improved. What a joy it is to join him and my friends among the General Authorities and all of you in building the kingdom of our Heavenly Father here upon this earth. I love President Tanner, and I love President Romney because they are my friends. I'm happy to have Elder Bruce R. McConkie seated at my side because he, too, is a friend." As we more fully strive to comprehend the significance of friendship, the more our appreciation should increase for the truths found in the following quotation. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. It is well for us to be reminded we are friends to ourselves when we keep our lives unspotted from the sins of the world and leave ourselves better tomorrow than we are today. It is a worthy daily goal to be a true friend to oneself. Our responsibility to the widow and the fatherless was to accept them the way we find them, but to not leave them without improvement. Ours is to lift the heavy heart, say the encouraging word, and assist in supplying the daily needs. Aren't we something less than a friend if we have the gospel of Jesus Christ and are unwilling to share it by word and by example with a family, a member, a neighbor, or a stranger? Aren't we something less than a friend if we have a testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ and are unwilling to share it? A friend is a possession we earn. It is not a gift. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. The Lord has declared those who serve him and keep him his commandments are called his servants. After they have been tested and tried and found faithful and true in all things, they are no longer called servants but friends. His friends are the ones he will take into his kingdom and with whom he will associate in an inter- eternal inheritance. Let me share with you quickly a few of the many friend references in the Doctrine and Covenants referred to by our Savior. And again, verily I say unto you, my friends, draw near unto me, and I will draw near unto you. Seek me diligently, and I shall, you shall find me. Ask and ye shall knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Whatsoever ye ask in the Father's name, it shall be given you that is expedient for you. And another, imagine how Joseph and Sidney felt when he said, My friends, Sidney and Joseph. Another occasion, my friends, behold, I give unto you a revelation and a commandment. And again, My friends, fear not. I will call you friends, for you are my friends, and ye shall have an inheritance with me. May I add that the last friendly greeting was given when the Lord was rebuking Joseph Smith for the conduct of his family at that particular time. And finally, And as I said unto mine apostles, even so I say unto you, For you are mine apostles, even God's high priests, Ye are they whom my Father has given me, ye are my friends. I bear you my witness, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is our friend. In his loving processes of command, rebuke, greeting, revelation, encouragement, and long-suffering, he daily proves this. Certainly he is willing to take us the way we are, but wants to leave us improved in his word and in his paths. For a few moments, enjoy with me some very simple yet powerful recent conversations I've had in seeking the true significance of friendship. I asked an eight-year-old girl, who is your best friend? My mommy, she replied. Why? Because she is nice to me. A pre-stage young man was asked the same question. My bishop, why? Because he listens to us guys. A 19-year-old gleaner, my gleaner teacher, why? She is always available to me, even after class. A 13-year-old boy, my scoutmaster, why? He does everything with us. A prisoner, the chaplain, why? He believes me. He even believed me sometimes when he shouldn't have. (laughs) A husband. Who is your best friend? My wife. Why? Because she is the best part of me. From these, cannot we conclude that friendship is earned? It was Emerson who said, the only way to have a friend is to be one. No one can be a friend until he is known. A friend is a person who will really take the time to not only know us, but to be with us. One of the finest presents you can give anyone is your best self. The prophet Joseph Smith gave us a glimpse of his measure of friends when he said, If my life is of no value to my friends, it is of no value to me. And the Savior said, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. When Robert Louis Stevenson was asked the secret of his radiant, useful life, he responded simply, I had a friend. In Exodus chapter 33, verse 11, we read, God spoke to Moses as a man to his friend. A friend, in the true sense, is not a person who passively nods approval. A friend is a person who cares. Please share this recent experience I had while visiting in South America. I was traveling with a mission president some 200 miles from his office. Word reached him one of his elders was in the hospital with a ruptured appendix. His condition was grave because of the six to seven hour delay in getting medical attention. The mission president gave immediate instructions by telephone, getting the best physician possible, leading 60 missionaries assembled in zone conference in United Prayer. He and his wife were at the elder's bedside the following morning. Prayers continued. Medical attention increased. Companions took turns sitting at his bedside around the clock. Parents in Idaho were notified. The best is being done for your son. We feel that he will make it. Please have your family join us in our prayers. Here was friendship in action. Here was a friend at work. Here was an example of leaving the ninety and nine for the immediate attention of the one. No greater reward can come to any of us as we serve than a sincere thank you for being my friend. When those who need assistance find their way back through and with us, it is friendship in action. When the weak are made strong and the strong stronger through our lives, friendship is real. If a man can be judged by his friends, he can also be measured by their heights. How can we help a friend? An Arabian proverb helps us answer. A friend is one to whom one may pour out all the contents of one's heart, chaff and grain together, knowing the gentle of hands will take and sift it, keep what is worth keeping and with a breath of kindness, blow the rest away. Yes, a friend is a person who is willing to take me the way I am, but is willing and able to leave me better than he found me. All of us should be eternally grateful for the classic experience shared by Peter and John. When they approached the gate beautiful, here was a man lame from birth. Lying there, a beggar, all through his life, he had never walked on his feet. As they moved in his direction, he held out his hands, beckoning, expecting alms. And Peter said to him, as we will all recall, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk." and he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. Peter was a friend. He told the beggar, Rise and walk, and I'm going to help you. We too must take the friend by the hand until he sees and finds that he has enough strength to go on his own. Is it not appropriate to conclude that Peter was willing to take the friend the way he was but to leave him improved? Our Savior pointed the way to reap friendship with our associates and with him when he declared, For I was unhungered, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of these, the least of my brethren, ye have done it unto me. I pray, God, to help us to be friends. We need God's friendship. He pleads for ours. God lives. He is near. He is available. I leave you my testimony today that Jesus Christ is our Redeemer and Savior, that this is His Church, and He, too, is our friend. I bear this witness humbly. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
2: My dear brothers and sisters, one of the great experiences of life is to be among the saints. We all have the responsibility of preparing ourselves and others for entrance back into the kingdom of God. The atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ made it possible for all mankind to be resurrected and to be raised to immortality. Resurrection and immortality are universal gifts from God. The Apostle Paul taught, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But to be resurrected and immortal is not all that is required for entrance into eternal life in the kingdom of God. Eternal life in his kingdom is far beyond God's universal gift of immortality and is his greatest gift to all mankind and can only be brought about through obedience to the doctrines and commandments taught by Jesus Christ. Jesus said, Trifle not with sacred things, if thou wilt do good, yea, and hold out faithful to the end. Thou shalt be saved in the kingdom of God, which is the greatest of all the gifts of God, for there is no gift greater than the blessing of entering back into his kingdom. There is only one divine way provided by our Heavenly Father. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. This is the Lord's way, and coming unto the Father is a divine and sacred gift, gift that must be merited. Today there is much controversy and contention among the doctrines and philosophies of men relative to the requirements for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Many try to justify their claims with the statement of Jesus to the thief on the cross when the thief said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Jesus and the thief went to paradise. There are those who teach that paradise and heaven are one and the same place, but this is not according to the teachings of the Holy Scriptures. After mortal death, the Spirit goes to paradise and remains there until the appointed time for its resurrection into immortality and eternal life. Heaven, which is the kingdom of God, is where those who have been obedient to God's plan of life and salvation go after judgment and the resurrection. The Spirit of Jesus, after his death, went to paradise and not to the kingdom of heaven. It was not until after his resurrection that he mentioned about returning to the kingdom of heaven. You will recall his words to Mary as she stood by the sepulcher weeping. And the resurrected Savior spoke to her when she went to touch him. Touch me not, for I have not yet ascended unto my Father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, unto my God and your God. His spirit had been to paradise, but it, not, but it had not yet ascended to his Father in heaven. Jesus warned that few would find their way and prepare themselves to live in the kingdom of heaven. He said, Enter ye into the straight gate, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Many, according to Jesus, will be misled and deceived by false teachers and false prophets, and some will desire to follow the ways of the world and will destroy their divine opportunity to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, "Wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. Contrary to what many believe, believing that there is a God and being virtuous and pure is not sufficient to prepare a person for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. The Savior's parable about the ten virgins and their desire to enter the kingdom of heaven makes this point very clear. Jesus said, Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise, and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, Came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. The Lord was not talking about five thieves and sinners and five good people. He was talking about ten virgins, ten pure people, who believed in God and had a desire to enter into the kingdom of heaven. The five foolish virgins had failed to prepare, their lights were out, they were in darkness. Their urgent pleas and hasty preparation were not sufficient and they heard these words from the lips of their God, I know you not. What a shame to be clean and yet unprepared. What a tragedy to fail in service to God in helping to build his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Many good people spend their Sabbath day out in the mountains, in the hills, with camping and fishing. Good people disrespect for the Sabbath. Jesus, speaking of good people who failed to qualify for entrance into the kingdom of heaven, said, These are they who are not valiant in the testimony of Jesus. Wherefore, they obtain not the crown over the kingdom of God. It is a divine warning from the teachings of Jesus Christ that one must be prepared to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. The light of white life is part of the preparation, and it can only come through Jesus Christ. When Jesus lived on the earth, he lived among religious people. They were known as the Pharisees. They believed in God. They accepted the teachings of the prophets in the Old Testament. They accepted the Ten Commandments. And would not even pick up a stone on the Sabbath day in their compliance with the commandment <clears throat> relative to the Sabbath day. Yet Jesus said to the devout Pharisees, "This people draweth unto me with their mouth and they honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men." He also warned these people about their preparation for entering into the kingdom of heaven through the Pharisee religion and its man-made doctrines and commandments. He said, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees and all of their dedication and their love for God and the ancient prophets and their obedience to man-made righteousness that appeared to be taken from the Holy Scriptures would not qualify them for entrance into the kingdom of heaven, the Pharisees were worshiping a mysterious God of spirit, and they did not know the living God when He appeared before them. Jesus tried with all His holy, <clears throat> with all of His godly power, to convince them, but they would rather defend their man-made church and their man-made doctrines than to accept the church and teachings of Jesus Christ. In no case would the righteousness of the Pharisees qualify them for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. It is The Apostle Paul gives just a few, and I must hurry, a few of the things that will keep us out of the kingdom of heaven. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions— heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Adulterers and fornicators will not enter the kingdom of God and those that are guilty of the sins Paul mentioned. It is important to know that all of the requirements for entrance into the kingdom of God were personally given by Jesus Christ and are found in his holy scriptures. Jesus gave the most important of all commandments, and this is the key that will give us great guarantee for the opportunity of entering back into the kingdom of heaven. He said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is love fully refined. This is not hippie love. This is godly love. And the Lord said, If thou lovest me, serve me, and keep all of my commandments. I bear witness that God lives, that Jesus Christ lives, that Harold B. Lee, our new president, is close to the Lord. we felt it in his presence many times. I close with this purifying commandment from the Lord. Let virtue garnish thy thoughts unceasingly. Then shall thy confidence wax strong in the presence of God. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
3: I love that song, and I testify to his truthfulness on this day. In that inspiring session this morning, Each of us had the privilege of making a covenant with the Lord that we will sustain, uphold, aid, and even defend these great men who have been chosen to lead this church at this time. I suppose if I what I say would have a title that would be We have made covenants with the Lord. If we keep those covenants, it will be well with us. Making covenants with his people and with individuals has always been one of the principal ways in which the Lord deals with them. The scriptures tell us that he made covenants with Adam, with Noah, with Enoch, Melchizedek, with Abraham, and others and that he also made covenants with Israel of old, with the Jaredites and with the Nephites. Surely the Latter-day Saints are a blessed people, because in a similar way the Lord has made covenants with us individually and collectively. A covenant is a binding, solemn agreement entered into by at least two individuals. It requires that all parties involved abide the conditions of the compact in order to make it effective and binding. Most people do not realize that sacred covenants made earlier with earlier prophets and peoples have been restored to earth by a new covenant. The Lord made clear the reason for establishing a new covenant For he said, They have strayed from mine ordinances and have broken mine everlasting covenant. Wherefore I, the Lord, knowing the calamities which should come upon the inhabitants of the earth, called upon my servant Joseph Smith, Jr., and spake unto him from the heaven and gave him commandments. As a result of that revelation... The prophet Joseph became the instrument in the hands of the Lord in restoring the new and everlasting covenant, which is actually the fullness of the gospel and embraces within its powers and terms conditions every covenant and commandment that our Father has ever made to man on earth. It provides the way to eternal life and even to exaltation to all who accept the gospel and who endure to the end in living its principles and ordinances. For he said again in a revelation, Even so I have sent mine everlasting covenant into the world to be a light unto the world and to be a standard for my people and for the Gentiles to seek to it, and to be a messenger before my face to prepare the way before me. It is here, in its fullness, with all its powers, as a guide, a standard for us and for all men who will heed it. The law, love of God is extended to all mankind, For he has said, O ye inhabitants of the earth, I, the Lord, am willing to make these things known unto all flesh, for I am no respecter of persons. Because of this, we send missionaries by the thousands into all the world where it is permissible to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ and to baptize those who believe. Now some may wonder why the Lord gives commandments and requires us to make covenants with him. Or as one person asked, if the Lord loves us, why does he give us commandments? If he loves us, why does he say, thou shalt not, or thou shalt? A simple answer to these questions seems to me is he commands us because he loves us. He knows perfectly well what will bring peace and success to us in our individual lives and in the world, and what will bring the opposite. Just as any father would direct or even restrict his children if it would be a a blessing to those children, so our Father in Heaven gives us commandments, laws, and covenants, not for the sole purpose of restricting us or burdening us, but rather that we may, through obedience to correct principles, find peace and success. Actually, We do not have to do what the Lord commands us, for we have our free agency. But we cannot obtain the the rewards and the blessings he has promised unless we do. For all who will have a blessing at my hands, he says, shall abide the law which was appointed for that blessing and the conditions thereof, as were instituted from before the foundation of the world. It's an immutable law and principle. Every member of the church has made covenants with the Lord. These commandments and covenants are not grievous. They are not burdensome. They are not... They are, they are on the contrary. They are, they are enlightening, uplifting, assuring, and helpful. They are instruments of voluntary action on our part which help us to concentrate our efforts to accomplish the purpose in life and to reach our ultimate goal. Our first covenant is entered into when we are baptized and confirmed members of the church. The conditions under which one becomes a candidate for baptism and the obligations of membership after baptism should be understood and impressed by upon all people both young and old the lord has made these requirements and expectations very definite in these enlightening words all those who humble themselves before the before god and desire to be baptized and come forth with broken hearts and contrite spirits, and witness before the church that they have truly repented of all their sins and are willing to take upon them the name of Jesus Christ, having a determination determination to serve him till the end, and truly manifest by their works that they have received of the Spirit of Christ unto the remission of their sins, shall be received by baptism into his church. So, as one prepares himself for baptism, he must recognize that there are specific obligations and covenants associated with receiving of this sacred ordinance. When we partake of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, we enter into a solemn covenant of obedience that we will keep his commandments. And we witness unto the Lord that we will take upon us his name and always remember him and keep the commandments which he has given us. Partaking of the sacrament should be done in sober solemnity. Again, when we agree to have the priesthood conferred upon us, we thereby covenant with the Lord that we will honor it through righteous, decent living, and magnify the office given us in that priesthood in service to others, always extending to all men kindness, consideration, courtesy, and love. Now, if we keep the covenant of baptism and honor the priesthood and its covenants, and in other ways live in conformity with the principles of the gospel, We may then have the great privilege of entering a holy temple where we may receive the higher ordinances of the priesthood and in due time enter into that order of the priesthood which is known as the new and everlasting covenant of marriage. With this obedience, with this ordinance, the principle is given that if we remain, the promise is given, that if we remain faithful and true to the end, to the covenants made, we shall come forth with the just in the morning of the first resurrection and with our companions, our children, our posterity, be permitted to live in a state of never-ending happiness, provided, of course, that they too keep the covenants which it will be necessary for them to make. My, what hope, what comfort, what assurance, and joy this promise should bring to the hearts of those who love their families. Surely it is true that eye hath not seen, nor ear heard, nor hath it entered into the heart of man the things that God hath prepared for them that love him. And, of course, he has said that they who love him will keep his commandments and covenants. President Joseph F. Smith reminded us of this when, in these words, we cannot slight, we cannot neglect, nor depart from the spirit, the meaning, or the intent and the purpose of these covenants that we have entered into with our Father in heaven without shearing or depriving ourselves of the glory, the strength, the right, the title of his blessings, and to the gifts and manifestations of the Spirit. For surely God will not be mocked. Let me repeat, each one of us, has, entered in, has made covenants with the Lord and have agreed before God in sacred places that we will observe his laws, which after all are but principles by which we must learn to live in order to qualify ourselves and those about us for the greatest of all the gifts of God, which he says is eternal life, our life in the family kingdom. I testify to you, brothers and sisters, that I know that God lives and that he has, because of his love for us, condescended to make covenants with us in order that we may be spared from failure, from sorrow, from regret, and that we may rise to the full heights of glory that are promised to those who are faithful and endure to the end. My brothers and sisters, we are a covenant-making people. Let us also be a covenant-keeping people. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.